Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. It's raining this morning and there is a reason that I am actually doing the introduction this morning. I'm here with Jason, who just got back from the dentist. Good morning. And Tyler and Don. And we're going to talk here in a few minutes about some early season insect issues, but I'll cue Jason and see if he has anything to add about his experience at the dentist or the torture chamber is what I used to refer to it. I can talk, but I I have bit the side of my tongue like a half a dozen times this morning already, and my tongue is still completely numb. Therefore, I'm a little bit leery about talking plainly. As well, if I talk plainly most of the time anyway, but just plainly yourself. as I normally do because I, my tongue has gotten in the way of those teeth on the side and I've chomped down on it a few times and I don't want to do mm. that. The other thing I will say is the word extraction. No, nah, dude, you pulled that thing. You can use the fancy medical word if you want to. That but fits in you, yanked. You, <laughs> You, in fact, Ripped stuck a pair of pliers of my in my mouth and yanked that thing out. Did he uh, have a pair of channel locks? Dude, I don't watch. <laughs> if you come at me at the dentist with a pair of pliers. <laughs> my, my personal favorite is. I'll the, be leaving. The grinding, cracking, and, no, <laughs> yeah. and knowing that your body's producing that sound and that's not an, a natural sound for your body to make. Like you think anyway. a dude sharpening a set of lawnmower blades in there. So, Tom, what what is your best, worst dentist experience? Not too many years ago, I had what I thought was a rotten tooth. So I went to the dentist, visited him. Logical place to go. Yes. And he said, no. He said, you know, when you have your wisdom teeth extracted, we use that term. <laughs> we should use that loosely this morning. But when you have your wisdom teeth extracted or ripped out of your, your being, he said, oftentimes they'll break some bones in your mouth and that will get left in there when they extract those wisdom teeth. Again, extraction. Uh, I had those pulled out when I was 18. Most of us do, although lately not a lot of people have getting it done. Anyways, long story short, he gave me an antibiotic and a mouth rinse, you know, patted me on the back, said, hey, good luck. About a week later, I was popping Tylenol like they were going out of style and it was not touching the pain. So I went back to the dentist opened my mouth and he went straight for something. And I looked at him, I said, doc, what's the problem? He said, well, I'm going to pull the piece of bone out of the bottom of your jaw that's stuck out of your gum. And I said, oh, well, how about that? Yeah. So when they extracted those wisdom teeth, they did in fact break a bunch of stuff in there. And that was extruding from the bottom of my gum, which was causing a significant or, amount of pain. Extruding or protruding? Protruding, extruding. Protruding would be the better term. And that's basically what this was. They pulled the tooth last year, and this was frag remnants. Yeah, remnants, fragment left over. They, in fact, extracted the truth. All right, entomologist Tyler hadn't said a word. (laughs) We had we had turned this into the Teeth Doctors podcast. (laughs) You never know which direction that rabbit's going to run when you come in here. You know, however many shots they give you in your mouth to deaden half your face, that's that's worth talking about. On that note, I should point out I went to a meeting years ago when I was a postdoc, and they had looked me up on the internet to get my name tag, and I showed up at this meeting. And it said, Dr. Tom Allen, equine dentistry. (laughs) And I was like, well, 
what point would you be confused that I'm at an actual plant disease, plant pathology meeting, and I'm an equine dentist? Boy, talk about specialization. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Q Tyler. So what are we going to talk about, Don? I know that corn's coming up and brown stink bugs always kind of an issue. We've been out doing some looking uh, for brown stink bugs and corn. For years we've been saying our issue, our issue with that is being able to detect them in time to make a treatment if, if warranted before damage occurs. And we're still struggling with that. Uh, we're, we're playing around with some traps and some uh, commercial pheromones for other stink bug species because those pheromones are not real specific. They'll bring in other things, but that that's very early work. And, uh, yeah, we've caught some bugs, but I can't say one way or another which one is you should use or whether or not it actually catches enough to uh, – you know, reliably make a recommendation on. I mean, that's going to take some time to figure that out. How many locations you have those at? Right now I'm at 16. But like I said, it's still early. Uh, I ran out of traps. I've got some more ordered. And if there's still small corn as we go north or here, we'll try to get some more out. Just kind of play it by ear and see how it works. Well, and with brown stink bugs, and we know in soybeans, you, you when we spray for them, it's always good to throw a little extra in the tank other than a, just a pyrethroid. But in corn, is a pyrethroid all we have? And how well does that pyrethroid work on its own? Bifenthrin does pretty good. Even in beans by itself, you know, a full rate of bifenthrin will do a pretty good job. Killing them is not the issue. It's detecting them. Right. Gallon to 25, gallon to 20 bifenthrin does a pretty good job on them. How many ounces is that, Don? That Not is everybody speaks in a five point one two ounces is one to twenty five, and six point four is a gallon to twenty. Thank you. And that's a tenth pound active. If you want to go the next, well, no, one I don't need that. I just don't speak entomologist, and y'all always confuse me when you start. I know a, a gallon to four and a gallon to eight, and that's that's. Well, some of our stuff is a the I rates know, are lower. I know. I get it. I get it. My brain doesn't work like that. I though. know. We've got some wheat heading around. We're kind of kind of keeping an eye out on it, trying to look at it and see what kind of uh, stink bugs are showing up in it. Not necessarily from we're concerned about it from the wheat standpoint, but for either browns for corn or rice stink bug later on for rice is kind of what we're looking at on that. Well, and I see those things all over. Yeah, you know, and that's <clears throat> when they plant the wheat OVT. They've got that at Beaumont, so that's yeah. substantially south from where we're at. And then I'm trying to, th- you know, Beaumont, Raymond, uh, the one at Crystal Springs, and they just Brad doubled those up this year. Put one at Crystal Springs and put one at Raymond. And I've not, I've not made it out to look at those yet. Uh, either end of this week, beginning of next week, will be perfect. But I assume that I will see a ton of rice stink bugs in those, and I usually do, even it, in those it, south things. It just depends on what stage it's at. Uh, we looked at some around Bell's Only the other day, and it's not quite as far along as it needs to be for them to show up. We've got a student working on rice stink bug and pyrethroid resistance, and that's kind of where we're out and about looking for collection sites and that kind of thing. What does the range of stink bug populations or species that we have Think about 52 and rain. Well, I'm sure they like me. They're not real happy <laughs> moving a little bit slower. All insects, you know, their development is 
governed by temperature to a large degree, and the cooler it is, the slower everything is up to a point where they can't survive. Well, and all those have overwintered as adults. Is that mm, correct? Yes, pretty much, yeah. I think I don't think any of the stink bugs overwinter as immatures. I will throw this wrinkle in. We are seeing red-banded stink bugs as well in clover, which makes everyone very happy. Well, what kind of numbers are you talking about in those? Low numbers still even? Or? It varies. It's all over. We found a little patch on 49 just south of Isola the other day, and it was 8 per 100. Which is not necessarily low. No. That's what I was going to say. That doesn't seem low. It's not low. <laughs> and I know Whitney and her group's doing a lot more sampling than we are. The first one we did over here was like almost a month ago. And it was less than one per hundred, but as it warms up, it would not surprise me for these populations to be, or these catches to be higher. Do you only check red clover? Crimson is, they like it. They like it a lot. And Tyler's done a bunch of this kind of stuff. Uh, I've catch them out of white clover, but given a choice, I think they'd go to crimson way before white clover. Yeah, and there's a bunch of clovers. They, you know, crimson's one that, blooms really before everything else does so it serves as kind of an early season nursery for these bugs and then when it finally does desiccate out and all those blooms and stuff go away they start just finding other clovers that they can get to so that's when we start finding them in like a purple clover or white dutch clover and then they just kind of tend to bounce around best i can tell they bounce around from clovers until beans start podding i feel like there's less crimson clover around driving up down the road than there is other clover especially a white just regular old white clover well, there's a, there's a story behind that in the delta for years and this predates me and jeff ever coming over here but back in the set probably maybe even into the 60s there was i don't know if it was a <laughs> that would predate you for real well <laughs> yeah but but this go, this goes way back yeah, okay. And I don't know if it was actually a legal thing or it was just a gentleman's agreement, but they did not plant crimson clover in the Delta for bollworm because it is a major early season bollworm host. If, in fact, there's not as much crimson clover and they prefer it, are your numbers concentrated because of a, a preference and a lower population of the clover? I think they're just scattered out on other hosts, and it's just that that is such a good host. When you find a patch, it okay. concentrates them locally there. Gotcha. It's just a real easy one to sample. Gotcha. Okay. There is no way that I would say that, well, if you don't have crimson clover, you don't have any red bandits. They're just being all the other clovers. Okay. Yeah. They don't go to kudzu? Not this. We, we can't tell that they go to kudzu. I've tried winter pea and all kinds of other legumes and it's just clovers and there's a lot about the you know the ecology of that thing that we just don't know it may be something about when it produces seed and all of that that they just like i mean someone could sp spend a career looking at the biology and ecology of that thing outside of beans you know in our grower meetings we're you know we were talking about the Im potential impact the cold weather at christmas had we all were very cautious about saying that, no, you're not going to have a problem. And we were, we were correct to be cautious because they are showing up. 
Well, how's that stack up to last year's numbers? Last year was a pretty warm, warmer winter. We had a cold weather event winter of 21-22 as well. But that would have been like a January-February because it was a warm December that year, it if was, I'm not mistaken. Well, I mean, outside from that period at Christmas, we were warm. It was just a different time, timing. And the difference is 21-22, we had all that snow cover. Here we did not. And we're thinking, you know, that maybe being exposed and they kill some. And it probably did, but it didn't eliminate them like it did for during 17-18 where it stayed below 25 for like nine days. Well, and if you'll remember in February last year when we did get that freeze, it was like a week long where everything yeah. was iced. And even down, I was in Louisiana at the time, everything even down there was iced. Um, this year, and I went back and did the math, and I pulled Greenwood because it was just a good central location for Mississippi. But I I took their airport uh, weather data and figured out how many hours we were below a certain degree temperature, and I used 20. We were below 20 for 35 hours consistently under 20 degrees. Um, and I, I thought that would be enough to kind of beat back some numbers, but obviously it wasn't. And and I don't know what your thoughts about this are, but it seems like, you know, when we first had that big freeze back in 2017 and they got beat back and we didn't see them really at all 2018, it doesn't seem to be the same way now. I'm not saying they're adapting to be more tolerant to the cold, but it does seem like they're finding better overwintering places or something. That's not my area by any stretch, but it seems like that's the case. Now, the weather events that we've had have not been as extreme as that. right? And we probably grossly underestimate the insulating characteristics of like six inches of leaf litter and... Well, you're not factoring in when that leaf litter comes down either because that's been variable the last few years, and that's just a casual observation because it seemed like the fall was a little later Yeah, but in 2022. And then I, but, I mean, that fits right with the insulation fact. And then your soil temperature and air yeah. temperature, and that's a big... But, you know, stink bugs are a lot like plant bugs. I mean, they may be buried in that leaf litter quote, overwintering during a cold period, you let it get 75, they'll get active and start moving around, start feeding. It's not like, you know, they can detect, you know, those temperature changes and all, seek those sheltered spots. And then the snow deal we saw last year reminded me of something that I was told years ago, talking about plant bugs overwintering in Canada. One guy said, well, what do you think the temperature is you know, below six inches of snow when it's, you know, minus 25 out air temperature. So I don't know. He said it's 32 degrees under a foot of snow. And then it may be warmer than that under a, a foot of snow and four inches of leaf litter. Well, that's what I was going to comment about what Tyler said about the 35 hours of below 20 at Christmas. But that day that it turned cold, man, it was like 60 yeah, and, and then it dropped. It dropped just it was two or three hours, and it dropped. Yeah, from just 60 incredible to drop. Yeah, and so then it would it would take time for the ground to cool down, and then by thirty five hours, by the time probably the top starts to freeze, it was warming back up yeah. by then. I mean, we sometimes we forget about that lag time mm-hmm. that you know, that soil cools a lot slower than the than the air does. So I mean, you have that buffering effect. Warms well. up a lot slower too. Yes, it do. 
Yeah, and there was a student and talking about insulation. We definitely see it, and I presented this data at the consultants meeting, but they're putting data loggers under different substrates, and they use uh, loblolly pine needles and things like uh, oak leaves. Oak leaves tends to be a really good insulator, and I think it was like a 30-degree difference from the fallow. So it was if it was if you had fallow ground under that leaf litter and it was just like an inch or two, it wasn't a lot, but an inch or two under that, that oak. Um, leaf litter it was 30 degrees warmer so you got to factor that in too i guess it kind of does make sense as to why we're we're seeing them you know you get under that and if you're only cold for 30 40 hours i mean that lag time is probably you're still really warm under that that leaf litter well and they're looking for that they're looking oh, yeah. for it yeah, they like to be warm so if <clears throat> y'all have always impressed upon us that if it's cooler in the morning they're typically deeper in the canopy and as it warms up throughout the day they move up into the soybean canopy so one would presume they do the same thing oh, yeah. within a leaf layer boundary I mean, whereby the sun's out they're on the top it's cool they're down in the bottom if it's warm enough for them to function and move around they're going to seek a area with an optimal as close to their optimum temperature you know as they can so they're going to move around looking for that comfortable spot. So is all this to say that we can expect the red bandits to be pretty tough this year, Don? The thing that may kind of buffer that is we have a whole lot of beans planted already. So our percentage of our crop that is late may be much less than it has been in the past. And typically – where we see them more problematic, and there's always exception to this, is, you know, getting into late July and on. There's a possibility that many of these early planted beans may outrun them, but, and, you know, they may deal with them at, you know, right at the end. It's hard to say, but we will deal with them in some fields. I can't say how many sure. or anything like that, but I'm fairly confident that we, we will deal with them to some degree. So we got corn spread out across the range of vegetative growth stages yes. right now. So what are the implications of this discussion that we've had with stink bugs on the current corn crop? Corn is, in my opinion, is even more complex because the susceptible stages is V4 and less. It's a little counterintuitive because of the growing point is above, below ground till V4. But all of that's so small and is very sensitive to those digestive enzymes to the best I can tell. So you have to have the stink bugs out coming out and looking for a host when that corn's at that susceptible stage. So they both have to line up. If there's another host that is ready before the corn is, they'll go to it. So, I mean, you could miss them. The more I fool with that, the more I realize how little I know about that situation. So what do we need to be looking for on the, say, the younger corn? What I have noticed as risk factors, and this is not guaranteed, is one that you need beans in the area last year, whether in that field or adjacent field, which that would produce your source population for this year, overwintering areas, you know, tree lines or whatever, somewhere from the overwinter, and then they come out. It seems to be that periods like now where it's cooler and the corn's growing slower, 
that holds that corn in those susceptible stages tends to make give them a larger window to damage that corn. That's the risk factors that I have some confidence in identifying from the things that we've seen the last few years. You know, some of this early corn that came that came up and it was warm and it was 75 and it blew through those growth stages, the opportunity for the stink bugs to damage it is so much less than when it's like for it is like V1 corn now, it's growing pretty slow. So it spreads that window of susceptibility out. What I've seen so far this year, I have seen less injury than I did last year. But we would have some corn that would be right for. Oh, there's some corn right now that is in the susceptible stages, and I haven't gone very far north above like Bolivar, and they tend to run behind us because they always catch rains that we don't. And I suspect, you know, is going north, there's more corn that's, you know, in those susceptible stages. And there's replant corn around here that's in it. Now, whether it catches or catches them or not, or they've already moved to another host that'll hold them there, it's possible as well. Bug peeps, thanks. <clears throat> we appreciate the time with you all this morning. I mean, it's always good to talk about, especially these early season issues, because I know Don, Don's been dealing with it the last few weeks when we've been talking in the hallway. Jason, I hope the mouth gets better, man. Pop some. It's good. Pop some Tylenol. Right, uh, candy. I don't like anything in my mouth to hurt. It's going to be real good about 2 o'clock when all this completely wears off but oh yeah what's that'll be fun it's part of the process well we appreciate y'all having us yep enjoyed it all right we'll see y'all back in a couple of weeks when we get some cotton up and going how about that sounds good the mississippi crop situation podcast is a production of mississippi state university extension 